in March, Mark Zuckerberg held a meeting with his employees. It was an hour-long town hall, a chance for people at Meta to ask questions of their boss. So I think it's important to remember the context here. That's Naomi Nix, who covers social media for The Washington Post. Mark Zuckerberg had just announced that the company would be doing another round of layoffs, slashing up to 10,000 jobs. And that was just a few months after they had already slashed uh, 11,000 workers. So employees were understandably anxious. And so was Zuckerberg, according to Naomi's reporting. He's getting a lot of questions from employees that are essentially, you know, asking him, how can we trust you? How can we trust your leadership after multiple rounds of layoffs? And Mark had a kind of answer. You know, he essentially said, look, that's a fair question. I completely understand why you're asking that question. You know, ultimately, I think the plan that the company has in place to, you know, become more efficient and and eventually more successful as a business will make this a better place to work. What does it tell you about him, or maybe I guess the, the moment that the company is in, that he said, yeah, that's a fair question? It was a pretty remarkable moment. And, I, you know, I talked to employees after that, um, and, you know, they talked about how they, it feels like a different company than the one that they had joined. According to Naomi's sources, Zuckerberg didn't sound like the confident version of himself that is the stuff of Silicon Valley myth. The whole Harvard dropout starts a wildly successful company from his dorm room shtick. The move fast and break things guy. He was cautious and reserved. He wasn't really talking a lot about vision in that moment. He was just trying to reassure his staff, hey, look, it's going to be tough for a while, but we'll get through it. And I thought that was a remarkable shift from, I think, the Mark Zuckerberg we've heard in the past. Today on the show, a status update on Meta. Between layoffs, competition from TikTok, and a somewhat baffling bet on the metaverse, can the company find its feet again? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's worth making a distinction right up front between Meta, the parent company, and Facebook, the social media app. So when Naomi and I say Facebook in this episode, that's what we mean. The actual social network, which is still Meta's core product. For years, Facebook had grown like gangbusters. Almost 3 billion people use it all around the world. Meta's other products, like WhatsApp and Instagram, both have billions of users as well. But 
in the past few years, growth hasn't been as explosive. And Meta, the company, faced challenges on multiple fronts. I'm curious when you started to see and think about the fortunes of Meta, the the parent company here, shifting. Like when when did that start to feel, I don't know, a little shakier? I would say it's it's fall 2021. Apple had introduced new privacy rules that essentially hurt targeted advertising. People probably remember getting a lot of messages popping up on their phone uh, that said, do you want this app to track you? And a lot of people said, no way. And that hurt Meta's ability to offer retailers targeted advertising. Because the their software was tracking people even when they were not on the Facebook app. They would go somewhere else and then Facebook or Meta would turn around and you know, sell targeted advertising based on that data. Right. It reduced the amount of information and really uh, the ability for the company to measure the effectiveness of advertising campaigns. And the less effective advertising campaigns, the more money retailers have to spend, the more they start to pause and think, mm, is this, you know, to, to potentially seek other ways of reaching their customers. And so that was happening. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and rising inflation created a kind of market instability that also prompted some marketers and retailers to uh, slow down their advertising. There had been a lot of optimism during the pandemic that, you know, the e-commerce market would continue to skyrocket even when Government lockdowns started to ease up, even when it was safe again to shop at brick and mortar shops. But that actually didn't turn out to be true. People kind of returned to their pre-pandemic shopping habits, and the e-commerce market grew uh, at the same kind of pace it was growing. That slowdown in growth in e-commerce also hurt Meta because it had actually gained a lot of traction during the pandemic because of advertising related to e-commerce. And then you have that the social media market is just becoming more competitive. There is more competition for eyeballs. There is more competition for advertising dollars. We're seeing TikTok. We're seeing Snapchat. The streaming platforms as well are competitors. And all of that was sort of coming together in this one moment, and it hit Meta like a perfect storm. I want to go kind of bit by bit through some of these different issues that they've that you've laid out. Um, I, and I'm also really curious because I know you've talked to a lot of people within the company about company perception, both internal and external. If we start with external perception, you're talking about fall of 2021 is this important moment. But I kind of wonder if you could go back a little further in time to either... Frances Haugen's files that that she, you know, took from Facebook and publicized, or even the 2016 election or the 2020 election. Like, how do you think the external view of Facebook influenced the way people working within Facebook and Meta felt about the company? Over the years, Meta had experienced a lot of scandals, right? There was Cambridge Analytica, um, you know, there was repeated political controversies related to some of uh, the company's top senior leaders. And more and more regulators and activists and everyday people were asking questions about 
you know, what's Meta's role in the public sphere? Is it hurting teens? Is it helping teens? Is it hurting our democracy? Is it um, helping, um, you know, what about an international community? Is Myanmar, right? Um, and the role the company played in exacerbating that that genocide. And so, um, you know, at that time, Facebook, the company, had begun to lose its luster, right? It was harder for the company to attract top talent. They ended up often paying above market rate to attract talent um, because people were less interested in working there. I think Frances Hogan, you know, the, the document she released exacerbated those anxieties. Hogan was the Facebook whistleblower who released thousands of pages of internal documents that outlined what the company knew about potential harms its products were causing. But the company could still lure workers who were attracted to the company because it offered great salaries and really generous benefits and the potential to work on interesting problems. And even people in the integrity space saw, you know, the ability to work on some of these issues that were gaining the company a lot of scrutiny from the inside. They felt they could do something to help. And they could do that with the the relative security that they had security at the company or the relative assurance that they had job security um, and that they could feed their families and, and, you know, create a life. But as the tech industry began to soften and lay off workers, those comfortable lives were slipping away. I talked to some workers, there's one who was like, you know, we stuck with the company, you know, during scandal after scandal, even when everyone was saying we were evil incarnate. But then the layoffs happen and it feels like a betrayal. I think a lot of employees, they did, they stuck with the company despite those controversies, you know, even during the Trump years, right? But this is, this feels like a different moment. Um, it's no longer just a publicity scandal. It's something that's happening to them. This was also around the same time that Facebook lost, what, 500,000 daily active users in, in that last quarter of, of 2021. I wonder what that says about their core business model, right? The, the actual social network. Yes, great point. The core social app is no longer as popular as it once was, right? Like it's no longer the buzzy new social media app that gets all the college kids, you know, that sort of revolutionized or was revolutionary among young people, right? And we we saw that actually in the wake of the Francis Hogan documents, we saw executives had for a long time been really um, concerned that young people were no longer signing up for Facebook, that they weren't spending much, as much time as they once did on Facebook, and that they were going to competitors like TikTok. And so we see like the core product that made Meta the company, the business, the strong business that it is, has just no longer retained its appeal. It's still, you know, user growth has recovered, but there's a sense in which it's not the social media platform of the future and that Meta, the company, needs a second act in order to retain its 
dominance in this space. Do you think that's why Meta went so all in on e-commerce during the pandemic? Remember, Meta has WhatsApp, it also owns Instagram. Um, And so its efforts to meet the demand, the e-commerce demand, happened on all of its social networks. Hmm. But I would say that Meta definitely took advantage of the money that it got during the e-commerce boom and reinvested in the company in other places in the company. Um, So there's something I I didn't include in the piece, but um, Meta you know, had bought this virtual reality studio that the FTC later challenged in court and and lost. But during trial, you know, Mark Zuckerberg essentially said, he said, look, we wouldn't, um, you know, after the company experienced repeated, you know, poor earnings showing, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said, at the time I bought the studio, which was during the pandemic, we were looking for ways to invest that money. That's not a project we would spin up now. And so I think it's fair to say that Meta used the revenue it gained during the e-commerce boom during the pandemic and grew its employee ranks and, and invested in the company in ways that it's trying to figure out how to unwind now. What, like 40,000 people, right? Yeah. That's a ton of people. It's a lot of people. They nearly doubled. And to be clear, they were always quickly growing um, year after year, but it just was a notable increase during the pandemic. And so that became too much. When we come back, was the pivot to the metaverse a mistake? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's talk about the metaverse. Um, They changed their name to Meta at this same period of time, fall 2021, spent billions of dollars on hardware and software. How would you say the bet on the metaverse is panning out? So far, it's not yet a profitable division. So what Meta says is it's making a long-term bet that eventually people will want to go to work and spend time with their friends and go into digital stores all in the metaverse using you know virtual reality headsets or augmented reality glasses and that this will be the next great computing platform after mobile phones but look the standard of technology that the company is striving for which is they want to make sure that these virtual reality digital realms 
feel and look as realistic as real life. That technology is a long ways away. Right, you have avatars that don't have legs. Right, (laughs) exactly, right? And so in the meantime, the services that the company does offer in this space, they just haven't gained mainstream appeal. It's experimented with several different hardware devices. And, you know, one of its uh, most popular ones, the Quest headsets, what tends to happen, employees have told me, is that people will buy a Quest headset, they'll use it for a few weeks, they'll think it's interesting and fun, and then they kind of just leave it there because they don't continuously use it. They might pick it up again during the holidays to show off to their loved ones or friends, but the company hasn't really figured out how to make it a really important habit for a lot of consumers. And even in its own virtual reality program that you app, rather, that you could access through the headset, Horizon Worlds, which is like a a social experience, essentially, you know that that's not also one of the more popular apps on the devices and that that there are other apps, even among the more active users of Quest, that are gaining more traction. I think one of the things that's really hard about evaluating something like this, right, evaluating the metaverse is, on the one hand, some of this stuff does feel ridiculous. You can go hang out in Horizon Worlds and there's like nobody in the virtual room that you're in or you're wandering through a castle and it seems really strange. But on the other hand, making successful technology bets does sometimes involve crazy ideas and trying things that seem weird and unusual. And I wonder when you talk to people within the company where they come down on this right now? Do they still have faith in Mark Zuckerberg and leadership that trying something weird might pan out? You'll hear mixed opinions about the metaverse. You'll hear employees who are like, I think the products are really cool. And then you'll hear from some are like, I am actively trying to avoid having to use them. Um, and so it really is like a mixed bag there. But I think the tolerance among the workforce for making this big bet at a time when the company is cutting down on jobs has grown thinner. Hmm. You'll see it in some of the questions that employees will put forward of, you know, why is the company not making deeper cuts in the division reality labs that oversees its metaverse efforts um, when that's the division that's not making money, right? And people who are working on the core social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, they're the ones that are essentially paying the bills. And what's the company response to that? You know, they have said, in fact, Andrew Brosworth, the chief technology officer, late last year put out a very lengthy blog post about this. And he said, look, we still are investing in technologies of the future. And we're still committing to putting 20% of our spending towards this metaverse bet. And so they've been a forceful defense of the metaverse from, from top leaders, despite the fact that it's still not profitable. Overall, Meta has said that the company's job-cutting and self-described year of efficiency is to, quote, make us a better technology company and to improve our financial performance in a difficult environment. Let's say 
Meta makes a bet that doesn't work out, whether it's in VR or their portal device or something else like that. Like, how do they respond to that? Are they are they willing to say, like, this didn't work for us, we're scrapping it and moving on? Well, I think we're starting to see that more and more, but it wasn't always the case, right? So if you look inside Meta's VR division, Reality Labs, for instance, they had invested in a video calling device line called Portal. And it had been really clear for quite some while that Portal was missing its sales targets, that it its user engagement metrics were not going well. But the company kind of kept clinging on. They tried to reinvent it as a as a remote work device for businesses and, and corporate workers. And people would just kind of say, look, this is a great project. You know, grandmothers can call their grandchildren and have story time. And the promise of the product seems so there. But it wasn't always tethered to reality. And I heard a lot of people, even people who would be critical of Mark Zuckerberg, even people who would be critical of the the workforce cuts that the company was making, would often admit that there were inefficiencies at Meta. They would often say that there are places that are that could probably be tripped, even if they were mad at the company for the way the process happened. And Reality Labs division, the, the Metaverse bet, was no exception to that. It's hard to have a Silicon Valley-related conversation right now without talking about AI. What is Meta doing in terms of AI? What are they focused on? How do they think about it? Well, look, Meta has long invested in AI, right? Like AI is what powers its newsfeed. AI is what powers its content moderation tools, its monetization, its advertising, you know, business. And so the company has long invested in artificial intelligence. It also has a lab that has also invested in large language models and generative AI and continuously publishes a lot of papers about artificial intelligence and generative AI and has even put out its own bot. I think where, where Meta has lagged, though, is in coming up with a product that could revolutionize or compete rather with ChatGPT, you know, with Microsoft, with Google's own efforts in that space. Something public facing and buzzy. Exactly. And we'll probably see that from Meta, maybe not specifically those types of products, but the company has said you should expect to see generative AI products from us. But it's clear that the the effort to to productize their own research and technology is lagging behind its major competitors. I had a conversation before I talked to you about kind of big tech in middle age, right? Like that was the framework. And I think one of the things that can happen to a company in this middle age, if we're going to call it that period of time, is maybe a, a, a loss of a sense of mission. And I wonder what people within Facebook slash Meta, what would they say they do? What's their what's their purpose? What's what is what does Meta do? I think that's been part of the confusion and frustration among employees is it seems like that Meta is just kind of jumping to the new shiny thing and that they don't always hear a clear mission or a clear sense of direction from the top leadership ranks. Hmm. 
And honestly, even if you listen to Meta's quarterly earnings calls, like like I do every you know every quarter, um, you'll you'll hear a lot of different themes, right? Like it was just October, you know, it was just. Um, you know, more than a year ago that we were renaming the company and the company was focusing on the metaverse. And right before that, it was like, young adults will be the North Star. And before that, they talked a lot about e-commerce. And lately, they've been talking a lot about AI. And I don't think really until even though maybe the last quarter, you really heard a consistent framing of how all those are coming together to work towards a common mission or a common goal that could kind of rally the troops. Um, And I think that's also part of the frustration, right? Because people, it affects the kinds of jobs that people pursue, part of what was happening during the lead up to the first workforce cut was that Meta was talking a lot about how it's focusing on its priorities. But if you hadn't been clear about the priorities, people didn't always know, what are the projects I should focus on? Which job should I raise my hand for? And so I think that that has also been frustrating for people. Speaking of those people, what what is their perception of Mark Zuckerberg, Andrew Bosworth, the, the sort of top brass? Like, What's their morale and vibe like? The morale has plummeted. You know, Meta puts out uh, an employee survey twice a year. And I obtained uh, some of the data from that last survey. And it showed that confidence in that leaders were taking the company in the right direction, you know, had plunged more than 10 percentage points. You have a lot of people who have lost trust in their CEO. And they've lost trust in particular, I think in recent weeks, it's really been about um, this idea of accountability. They argue that their top executives are the ones that kind of got the company into this mess. They're the ones who, who decided to overhire. They're the ones who made decisions based on rosier projections of e-commerce. But it's the rank and file that are paying the price. And most recently, that came to a head because you know, Meta filed some regulatory documents that showed the bonuses that they had awarded their top executives. And, you know, every year Meta dishes out bonuses to various employees. And part of the bonus is based on the company's rating of its own performance and then part of its individual performance. Mm -hmm. So the company had rated its actual performance lower than it typically does. But the individual ratings that it gave these top executives were were much higher than the company rating. And so you saw employees pushing back like, well, shouldn't top executive compensation be tied to company performance? Why are the top executives outpacing, you know, the company? Why are they being rated even higher? And Mark was kind of asked that in a call recently. And he's like, well, you know, a lot of them were kind of newer to their jobs. And I don't necessarily think that we can pin the issues that the company's experiencing on them. But that idea got a lot of pushback because ultimately, from a practical standpoint, who it's being pinned on are just regular workers who are losing their jobs. Mark Zuckerberg could have cashed out and walked away. He could just be chilling, had a third kid. He's not doing that. Why? He stands out in Silicon Valley, right? Like it's still a founder-led company and has shown no signs that he has any interest in in walking 
away from the company. If anything, he's kind of consolidated his power um, in the wake of, of Sheryl Sandberg's departure. You know, she was kind of thought of as like a co-CEO often. Yeah. And he kind of reduced the role of CEO um, and split her duties among, among top deputies. And so we see um, a Mark Zuckerberg as he's kind of maturing or rather overseeing this maturing company retain his power. He's been involved in the cuts even while he was taking like a reduced schedule because of the birth of his third child. We get the sense that Mark still cares about being an innovator. And more and more, if you see like his public commentary has been focused on selling the company as the space that's continuing to come up with new products, that's continuing to seek to transform human communication. And we get the sense that this is a leader who doesn't want to give up that mantle yet. He's still pretty young, right? You know, he doesn't have the side projects that Jeff Bezos did with with his investment in, in the space arena. So I think Mark still wants that next act. He still wants to be in the thick of things. And he's going through a really tough period right now at the helm of, of, of this company. Naomi Nix, thank you so much for your reporting and for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Naomi Nix is a tech reporter for The Washington Post. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. You'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.